We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. So I told you a few weeks ago that I wasn't going to do any more lockdown specials until the new season of How to Fail aired in June. But I changed my mind. And the reason I changed it was that, like almost everyone else, I watched Normal People, the 12-part BBC adaptation of Sally Rooney's prize-winning novel of the same name. And just like millions of other viewers, I fell in love with an exceptional piece of television. In fact, I was so blown away by the extraordinary central performance of Daisy Edgar-Jones as Marianne that I creepily slid into her DMs to tell her so. It was a performance that managed to be both nuanced and passionate, both subtle and intense, conveying complex inner thoughts and yet making them immediately understandable to the rest of us. Plus, the Irish accent was flawless, even more so when you learn that Edgar Jones grew up in North London. She trained with the National Youth Theatre before landing her first job playing the recurring role of Olivia in Cold Feet. She went on to appear in several more television dramas, including Gentleman Jack, Silent Witness and Outnumbered. But it is as Marianne that Edgar Jones has fully come into her own, with The Times describing her performance as perfect, and The Hollywood Reporter dubbing her a rising star. She is still only 21. Anyway, it's a mark of what a lovely person Edgar Jones is that she didn't block me on Instagram and instead agreed to come on the podcast. I am so thrilled to welcome her as I truly believe she will be one of the great actresses of her generation. Talking about normal people in an interview earlier this year, Edgar Jones said, What I gained from doing this series is my understanding of the world. I think normal is so messy. It's like a big scribble. I think that's what life is like for everyone. We live in a world where everyone is constantly projecting the perfect side of themselves and we live in a world of envy. I just think normal people is a really healthy depiction of what it is to be a human being. And I think, I hope, 
people watch that and agree and feel that they can see themselves in it. Daisy Edgar-Jones, job done. (laughs) And welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. This is crazy. I I told you before, but I'm a huge fan of the podcast, so I really can't believe I'm speaking to you. It's amazing. You're so lovely, and I'm a huge fan of yours. And I just think that that quote that I read at length, because there was so much good stuff in it, (laughs) is so relevant to the purposes of this podcast, because one of the things that I'm constantly trying to do is to counteract the fact that we live in an age of curated perfection, where it feels like you're only as good as your last Instagram post of freshly vegan tray-baked brownies. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's very little scope for failure. And actually, normal people, as you say, was a celebration of a beautiful kind of normality. And is that partly what drew you to the role in the first place? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I I just fell in love with Marianne. And I think the reason I did really is because she is someone who is deeply flawed and deeply struggling with her sense of self and of who she is. I think she really throughout the whole series is really struggling with this feeling of unworthiness. And I think that's something we all Mm. feel as a young person growing up that we aren't worthy of certain things or or when we're comparing ourselves to other people all the time via social media, via just everyday life. Marianne is, I think, inspirational because she is far from perfect and and the series celebrates that. And by the end, at least, she kind of feels that she's settled. But that doesn't mean that she's necessarily the most happy person or uh, living the best life she can be, but she's just okay with normalness, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. And also because she comes from this, I mean, not to give too much away, but a dysfunctional family background. And normal people so interesting because... It is sort of about privilege and what one means by privilege, because although Marianne is from a quote unquote slightly higher class bracket than Connell, her love interest, it feels like Connell has the privilege of coming from a loving family. And there's this constant like tension between the two that just adds so much to it. And I feel like I don't have a question there. I just wanted to share that. (laughs) Yes. No, it's so true that you said that, because I think that's something that's really interesting is that the privilege Connell has of of having a mother that cares for him and loves him and therefore he always knows that you know whatever he does in life he'll have someone who adores him you know who's unconditionally loves him if you know what I mean and Marianne sort of doesn't have that and I think it's a really interesting juxtaposition there. And Marianne her latent feelings of unworthiness they sometimes manifest themselves as being outwardly spiky and seemingly cold towards other people and yet what I think is so astonishing about your performance is that I loved Marianne from the first time I met her through your eyes and even though she has these characteristics you somehow bring the warmth and humanity out of her how difficult was that to do? That's so lovely because I think that's something that I found really interesting. And I I remember saying to Lenny early on in the process, like who directed the series, I have a a tendency to sort of add too much warmth to my characters. And I know that Marianne, when you read her, is meant to be quite spiky and sometimes quite unlikable. So it was a real battle to try and tell that truth, but also tell the truth of what I believed my Marianne to be, which was someone who was very deep and very vulnerable. And I think her kind of coldness is, is sort of a protection and 
And it's really interesting when you read the book because you get both Connell's perspective of Marianne as well as her own. And I think that kind of difference of, of the way you view yourself as opposed to who you actually are or how you come across to others is quite different. And I, I've always thought that about myself. Like, I wonder if my view of myself is very different to the way people view me. Does that align itself? And I think, you know, when I read Marianne's sort of chapters, I always saw her as someone who was really struggling with her sense of self, of someone who really didn't like herself and who was deeply sort of soft and vulnerable. But then when I ever, whenever I read Connell's perspective, she always came across quite harshly to him. And so, mm. you know, it was really wonderful being able to play both of those things in a scene of what you're actually saying to somebody as opposed to what you're actually thinking. And I guess it was a kind of balance of giving certain things to the camera that you don't give to the character in the scene with you. So the audience knows what you're feeling, but the character in the room doesn't, perhaps. But that's why I think it's such an amazing piece of television, because when I heard that it was being adapted into 12 parts, I was like, as brilliant as the book is, <laughs> how can they possibly make 12 parts out of it? Because so much of the book is interior mm. feeling. And the way you and Paul Mescal, who plays Connell, convey your interior thoughts to us is just astonishing. I've just, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. <laughs> and and I just want to salute you both for that. Is it right that you were the last person cast in Normal People? I was the second to last Marianne that they saw because I think Paul got cast quite a, a wee bit before me. He had a few chemistry reads with girls and then I think I came along about a month later and I was the second to last girl, I think, that met with him and... It was a really scary day, that chemistry read, because I'd fallen so in love with the part that I knew if I sort of didn't get it, I'd very much struggle to get over it. <laughs> For those of us who aren't actors, what is a chemistry read like? Because do you go in and are you like, well, I've got to be really charismatic and, and try and show that I really connect with this person? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of different depending on who you're auditioning with. But Lenny, who sort of cast it and, and did the first six episodes, was so wonderful because when I went in, usually there's sometimes there's a wee bit of preamble where they're like, oh, where did you come from? Or how are you doing today? And it's always the worst bit of an audition for an actor because then you have to speak as yourself. And yeah. you're <laughs> so nervous. And then you kind of have to launch into this scene afterwards. And it's just, it sort of takes away the kind of suspension of disbelief, so to speak. But Lenny was wonderful. I came in sort of shaking like a leaf, mm. so scared. And then he just sort of said, right, let's go on with the scenes. And, and Paul and I read a few scenes. And, and I think what he was looking for is a creative chemistry whereby you're able to communicate as characters in a way that's sort of in sync with each other and, it, and it's so important for Marion and Connell that they have this special way of communicating that is really rapid and flowing and and it's really interesting because I think a lot of the show is about miscommunication but actually I think those two characters when they are properly speaking are able to speak in a way that is so honest and raw and something I really seek for in relationships I have because it's beautiful and, and so I think it was finding that rhythm really. It's that thing of it feels to me as if they're only able to be their truest selves with each other mm. and yet there are all these other almost social miscommunications that make it very difficult for them just to be with each other. Yes I think it's that really interesting thing like of on the topic of inner life of how perhaps it's more potent when you're a younger person but your inner life is sometimes and your inner voice is so loud and your sense of self-doubt is so loud that it can come in the way of what's actually happening in a conversation with somebody else so I think mm. that's a, sort of very true for Marion and Connell is you know Connell just all he wants to do is ask her if he can stay 
for the summer and she would be fine with that and and surely in some sort of part of him he knows that but there's this loud voice in his head that is full of doubt struggling with elements of sort of class and and things like that that he that comes in the way of them both just stay for the summer I know I promise I will get onto your failures but I just need to I feel like I need to get out all of my questions (laughs) about normal people first and then How much did you chat to Sally Rooney herself before filming or even during filming? Because I know she co-wrote the script with Alice Birch. Yeah, so I met Sally for the first time at the massive read-through that we did before we started filming, which was yeah quite a terrifying sort of terrifying yeah. day because you know you've you've been cast but a massive part of your brain is like oh god they're going to realize they've made a mistake or you know you just kind of panic and and Sally kind of came over and she was so lovely and she just she seemed really excited and kind of a bit overwhelmed as well because it must have been crazy for her like having sort of written these characters in her own sort of bedroom and then suddenly all these people are speaking about them in a room together Mm -hmm. it must have been so strange but she was kind of really wonderful at giving us kind of freedom with it which I think is amazing I I know like if I'd written the story I think I'd have made sure I'd have been quite sort of rigid about all the details like oh no she's like she has to wear Mm -hmm. this outfit or whatnot but she collaborated with Alice obviously and Lenny and then I think gave us the sort of freedom to then interpret it our you know the way we did and I think she's just amazing because she was sort of like I I guess I'm the novelist and you guys are the filmmakers so you know you go off and do it so she came to set a few times but on the whole she was in New York writing her next novel and um, I think she got the rushes every day which must have been strange for her but she's so (laughs) lovely I am a big fan of Sally and she's writing a new novel, so that's exciting. That's um, very exciting. And let me just ask you about your relationship with Paul Mescal, your co-star, because mm. as we've already touched on, the connection between you two on screen is such a beautiful thing to witness. And I know that you are very good friends now in real life. Mm. What's it like playing such intense characters and such fully realised characters and then resuming your own self and being friends with someone off screen is there a sort of strange disconnect where sometimes you have to remind yourself that you're not actually Marianne and Connell (laughs) (laughs) I mean I think what kind of helped is is Paul and I's relationship is 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 like the polar opposite to Marianne and Connell's like Marianne and Connell are quite you know serious at times they do have a laugh together but on the whole they're quite deep and they speak about quite big subjects and they're quite soft and then Paul and I are like (laughs) the polar opposite I mean I'm massively flappy and like get the giggles really easily and we we're very silly together so I think it really helped when we were filming because sometimes you were doing quite intense scenes and then you'd be able to kind of yell cut and you would just sort of be giggling and and have a kind of release so our friendship is kind of it's a wonderful thing and something I'll really treasure forever and I, I feel so lucky to have met Paul and and, you know, we Paul has sort of had never done TV before and, and I, I'd only done a few little small parts here and there. I'd never sort of played a lead. So for us both, it was a big first experience and, and sort of quite scary, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it's a huge amount of pressure. We loved those characters and we loved the book and we wanted to do it justice. And we were both new to it all, so we didn't know if we were even able to sort of do the scenes required of us. So, yeah, we were very lucky we got on and we kind of helped each other out through it all. And even now, you know, through all of this madness, it's so nice to have Paul because you know, we were, we both just really can't believe it. It's just, yeah, crazy. Well, I, I mean, I was going to ask you about that because not only has it been a huge hit, but it's been a huge hit in lockdown. So yeah. I imagine that must be quite surreal that you're suddenly 
really famous and people are obsessed with it to the extent that Connell's silver chain has its own Instagram <laughs> accounts. But what's it been like experiencing that from your flat? Yeah, that's the thing. It's very hard to even register it, it as me or as true, if you know what I mean. I mean, th- mm-hmm. like, for example, this is just crazy, but it slightly feels like a dream because I'm like, <laughs> it's so kind of all encompassing when you look at your phone, but then you turn it off and you're just in your bedroom. And I, I think, you know, it's it's a really strange thing to even be talking about the show whilst this whole stuff is happening, because, you know, it just feels a bit odd to even be, even be talking about it. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just very hard to even register it as the case. And I, I think, because it's all from my bedroom, it might it might feel a bit different when we're able to go out. But right now, I, I don't feel very different. And mm. and whenever I see like stuff about Connell's chain or or stuff about like Marianne's bangs, for example, <laughs> like I look at the pictures and I don't really think of them as my my hair, like or me, <laughs> because I'm like, oh, that's Marianne they're talking about. So yeah, it's very it is very surreal. I, I must say, and yeah, I probably do miss my having my parents around because like obviously yeah. I can't be with them to speak about it and they're they're kind of just they can't believe it either so be nice when this all kind of lifts and I can I can see them and have a little boogie and like oh. a little sort of hysterical scream because it is mad <laughs> <laughs> we'll come on to your parents but I know that one of the things that has been talked about almost to a tiring point where I'm sure you're sick of talking about it yourself, but are the sex scenes in normal people? And Mm. I wouldn't normally raise this were it not exceptional because when I watch those sex scenes, one of the things that really struck me is that the male gaze is so often the default when we see Mm. pieces of cinema or television that frequently I've only ever seen a sex scene with full female nudity and it was so refreshing it felt like the camera gaze was really equitably distributed between the two of you and it was a really intimate in the truest sense of the word thing to watch and and I'd love you to talk a bit about how you navigated those sex scenes and made that happen. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things I am most proud of of the whole series is that aspect of equality between Paul and I and is the representation of intimacy between Marion and Connell. Because I remember just before the show actually aired, I had a few kind of nasty comments on my Instagram because obviously it was talked about a lot in the press that there was quite a lot of raunchy scenes, so to speak. And I remember kind of reading that stuff and thinking it was interesting because I I don't really think of, of those scenes as raunchy or explicit really because I I really don't think they are and so I remember sort of seeing those comments and thinking gosh am I going to get a lot of flack for doing those scenes and for having nudity but since the show has come out I have had nothing none of my friends have even sort of mentioned the strangeness of watching it and I think it's because those scenes are done so beautifully by Lenny and by Hetty who directed the second block and by sort of all the creatives I'm so proud of them and yeah we were really lucky that when we filmed them we had a a wonderful intimacy coordinator called Ito O'Brien and she is just amazing I mean we really couldn't have done any of those scenes without her and I I think that has to be the gold standard now that those scenes require somebody to look after you because it probably is a stunt and not just physically but mentally because it's a vulnerable place to put yourself in and you want to feel that you have complete autonomy and control because at the end of the day you know even though you are playing a character it is your body and and you want to feel that it's being handled with care and that 
people aren't just exploiting you. And I'm so proud that that wasn't the case. And so, yeah, Eta would kind of make sure that Paul and I would, we'd, we'd always discuss kind of the boundaries and, and what we were both comfortable and not comfortable with. And we would sort of agree touch whereby you'd say, this area is fine, but please stay off this area or I don't feel comfortable with this. And then we discuss exactly what the emotional beats are of the scene. I mean, Lenny speaks about it, and I, I think it's very true that often when you watch TV or film, when it comes to like a fight scene or a car chase or a sex scene, there's a different sort of set of rules when it comes yeah. to the camera. Suddenly this like mad music plays and the action kind of happens and the camera is sort of swooping around them and there's billowing sheets and, and beautiful candlelight and it feels performative and it doesn't feel realistic to what actual intimacy is like. And I think he was very keen to never feel like there was ever a change from a dialogue scene to a physical scene, because at the end of the day, you're still communicating something. It's just without words and it's physical. And there's always a purpose to those scenes. For example, you know, the ones with um, mm. Connell Marianne's first time, it's all about the kind of vulnerability of Marianne and her being made to feel safe by Connell. And I just love the idea that I love the sort of, the fact that Marion asks for protection because I just have never seen that in scenes and I don't yeah. know why because you know as a young person it would have been really refreshing I think to have seen that it's okay to ask for protection because <laughs> yeah. it really is and it doesn't have to take away from the sexiness of the scene or or the beauty of it so um so yeah we would just sort of discuss exactly what the narrative beats were and then depending on what shot they were using we were able to wear modesty gear so for a large amount of it we were fully clothed and then if it was a wide shot we would make sure that we were comfortable and there was as much protection as possible and then yeah we were just I guess from action to cut you were able to freestyle in the freedom of knowing exactly what the boundaries were and what each other were comfortable with and then you would just sort of act the scene. It's amazing to hear you talk about it because it's like choreography and I, I, I just I think that really shows that so much thought went into it. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Before we get on to your failures, final <laughs> question. I said that we were going to mention your parents because I'm of the generation that watched the first Big Brother series mm. and was totally obsessed and think that it is one of the most epoch-defining shows <laughs> of our age. And your dad, Philip Edgar Jones, was one of the creators. Yeah. And I wondered if he'd had any good advice for you on like, how to handle your sudden fame. Do you know, he's been just the best because when obviously when Big Brother was sort of at the top of its game, if you went in, you were sort of guaranteed to lose your, an, an, I can never say this word. I know, anim, it's difficult. Anim, anonymity. Yeah. Anim, that's the one. <laughs> anonymity. And, and so my dad was kind of, he's always been very good at making sure that, you know, he'd say things like, what's really interesting is that I think 
people around you might change, but you never will. You'll always be you. And it might feel very strange if suddenly people assume certain things, they assume they know you, for example, or they might assume that you think you're aloof to them or, or you know, you might mm. they might assume that, as they say in Ireland, you've got notions. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm very keen to never get notions. And I think he was just always said, you know, never ever kind of believe your own hype. Just remember that you've got to kind of keep your feet on the ground and your head screwed on and, and never kind of get too big for your boots, <laughs> which has been very useful because I would never want to ever ever be like that and your mother's northern irish where's she yeah. from well we've got family in newcastle county down and from manor and she grew up all over northern ireland but yeah so predominantly newcastle county down i grew up just outside Derry, which obviously you can oh. tell from my accent <laughs> <laughs> but if you've ever watched Derry girls i'm like the weird english dude in that program <laughs> um but did she help you with your accent then yeah, I mean, it was invaluable having her. And I also grew up with my granddad as well. He lived with me from 11 to 16 and he mm. had a very, very strong accent. So me, my mum and granddad, we'd always kind of speak in accents or put on sort of accents of like family members just because it was fun. And so I always had the kind of particular, I guess, the R sounds in my mind and a knack for accents because my dad's Scottish as well. So I would always kind of play with their accents as I grew up. And then, yeah, I think... I just have a, a quite a good ear for it, I guess. And, and it was really handy because we had a, a sort of deep discussion about the specifics of Marianne's accent because there's a lot of nuances in the Irish accent. And from, you know, even though it's quite, I guess, quite a small country, there's a huge sort of range of different accents. And so making sure to get the detail right was really important. And I didn't want to just kind of do a generic <laughs> accent because that would have been so wrong. So I think we were keen to have a kind of, the sort of the hint of Sligo but for Marianne not to be quite as strong as her schoolmates because she doesn't have any and I think when mm. you're young you sort of speak like your friends and so it was just kind of refining it and making sure it was perfect so I'm glad it, it went all right. <laughs> I actually just couldn't believe it when I googled you after watching and, and discovered that you weren't Irish so I just oh, wow. you did such a good job. <laughs> um, you. Okay your failures thank you so much for indulging my normal people chat. No there. worries. <laughs> And these are some of the most beautifully expressed failures I think I've ever received. So thank you for putting so much thought into them. And your first one is your failure to not going to university or drama school. Why did you not go to either? Was it because you were working? Yeah, so when I left school, I got quite good A-levels and I really thought about applying and, and going. And I did apply to a few places and got in. I'd had an agent since I was 16 and I'd, I'd obviously got my part in cold feet when I was 17 and I'd got kind of little parts here and there. And so I think I, I thought I'd give it I'd try and give it a year and see if I could maybe maybe get something bigger, you know, and it's so difficult because it's never guaranteed. And I think my mum and dad were probably at first a wee bit nervous about me deciding not to go. But I kind of I had a place. So I was like, ah, you know, if I don't get anything by the end of the year, I can go. And then sort of by the end of the year, I'd got another couple of small parts, but I still hadn't really got anything, you know, mm. like normal people. So I think I just thought I'd keep on trying. And and yeah, there was the odd time where I didn't get a part. And I was like, I talk about parts sometimes as feels like you're dating someone sometimes when you're auditioning. Yeah. They ask you out and, and you really think you're right for them. And then they keep <laughs> calling you back for dates like sometimes over four weeks and then just when you think they're going to ask you out they they go for someone else and it's heartbreaking and there's the odd one that really is hard to get over and, and sometimes when I didn't 
get those parts, which was more often than not, I think I would spiral into a kind of doubt of, of whether I should do drama school or whether I should do university. And yeah. And was acting something that you had always wanted to do? Yeah, it was. I mean, I think I, I always loved it at school, but it wasn't really till I was about 15 and I, I went to the National Youth Theatre and I sort of started to meet people my own age who knew stuff that I didn't about. Like, I didn't even know what an agent was or or what drama school was or the process of or what being an actor was like. And it was only really when I met sort of like-minded people who sort of taught me that stuff that I ever kind of considered it as a career. And so when your friends were all going off to university and you were at home trying for parts but sometimes not getting them what was that like for you? I think perhaps I experienced what I think a lot my mum would tell me that you know she experienced when she left uni which is that really difficult thing when you're in education your whole life and you're taught that if you get great A levels you know that's the ultimate goal or if you if you work hard you'll be successful and and for a lot of people it's you you know you're taught you have to go to uni that's how you work and and have a successful life but I think my mum said that when she left uni she had that feeling of you know when you're not able to get a job straight away and it's really tricky and I think I had that sort of after college because I didn't get work I auditioned I got close and I didn't get anything and I found that very anxiety making and I really struggled for a while and I think you know it's something a lot of actors go through but I think when I feel anxious I it sort of comes out in different ways for me and and one of the ways is I kind of struggle quite a bit with hypochondria I'm a bit of a hypochondriac and I think Mm. I had a lot more free time because all my friends were away at uni sort of living their best life so to speak or so it seemed on Instagram and I was kind of thinking gosh am I missing out on life experience and and so I would get quite anxious. I think so many people will relate to that particularly Mm. in I mean I know we're talking a little bit younger for you but particularly in your 20s I think it can feel so directionless because it is Mm. the first time for many of us that we've left full-time education and it's just a really difficult confusing time I think Mm. for a lot of us but tell me a bit more about the hypochondria and and where you think that kind of came from and how it manifests itself in you it sort of comes in waves I've sort of had it for a while and I just think it's my kind of way of dealing with anxiety it comes out in a sort of need to control the idea of if I see a rash for example I'm like okay if I really overthink that and google the heck out of it then I'm controlling it in some way if I find Mm. out that it's something really sinister I've caught it before it could potentially become something worse so I would kind of get a little bit obsessive about certain things and like sometimes it would be quite funny like when I when I was 15 we learned about like I think in biology about water and cells and and everything and I think we learned about something called hyperhidrosis I think that's what it is (laughs) where which happens to certain sort of athletes if they drink too much water they're like cells drown themselves (laughs) And I sort of remember learning that and thinking it was a bit interesting. And then I got on the tube and I think I was coming, I think I may have even been coming back from an audition and it was from like somewhere in Ealing. So it was probably Ealing Studios and it was like a good hour on the tube and I drank a big bottle of water. And that night I fully convinced myself that I had, I had hyperhidrosis and I, I genuinely felt that I did. And I, I think it is just that placebo effect where if you imagine something enough, you start to feel it. And so I ran down to my parents and I was like, I've overdosed on water. And they were like, oh gosh, okay, do we take you to hospital? And obviously when they, when you're faced with the idea of actually being taken to A&E, you realise that you are probably being ridiculous. 
And I was like, no, I'll try and poor thing. You poor thing. But it is actually a real thing. I mean, there's an actor called, is it Anthony Andrews, who genuinely did overdose on water. So I completely, (laughs) and I completely relate to that constant Googling as a Mm. way of exercising control. And when I've done it, I always keep Googling until I see the thing that I want to read that is most reassuring. But you said in your email to me that you had a lot of illness in your family from a young age. Yeah, I did. Because my grandma was quite sick when I was in school and my mum would come back and forth from Ireland to look after her. And she passed away and then my granddad lived with us for a long time. And obviously he was one of my my best, best friends, but obviously Mm. he was much older. And so he passed away when I was 16. And then my uncle Martin also passed away. So I've I've always had quite just I think we all do but I I had quite a lot of experience with I guess mortality from a young age and the idea of I've sort of been back and forth to hospitals quite a bit and yeah I guess I I have a fear of being ill yeah <laughs> um, which is something that sort of comes out when I'm very anxious in fact like I think it was the day before the first day of normal people and. I mean, it is quite funny. I can laugh about it now. And I have found ways to deal with it, which is really good, which I think more than anything, just not letting myself Google stuff, because I know Mm. that it's, if I believe that it's a rational thought, then I'll panic myself. But if I make sure that I realise it isn't, then it's fine. The day before, because the first day of onset of anything is terrifying, because, you know, it's like the first day of school, you just hope you're going to make friends and you hope you're able to even do the part. And I'd had a wisdom tooth problem the month before and I remember the doctor had said like are you allergic to corsidil and I was like no I don't think so and he was like well if you don't know better not risk it and then for some reason (laughs) I bought myself corsidil I don't know why because I was like oh apparently it's great for wisdom tooth and I don't want that that to flare up again because you know if you get ill when you're filming you really can't there's nothing you can do because it will cost a lot of money to not go to work so I was so scared about I don't know, sabotaging the whole thing by getting sick in some way. And so I, I took some course to deal and then convinced myself that I was having an allergic reaction to it. And my poor boyfriend, who has probably been the best thing for helping me with all that mm. whole sort of hypochondria and that anxiety thing, he sort of had to convince me that I, I hadn't, which I hadn't. So yeah, I, I lived through the night, which was good. <laughs> And do you feel, I speak to a lot of people who haven't been to university and they're often incredibly successful, talented people as you are, and yet they still feel fraudulent in certain settings, like that sense of imposter syndrome. Do you have that? Oh, a hundred percent. That Yeah, I really do. And I think, like, I think that was something that I found very anxiety making you know, when I decided not to go is that thing of I, I would hate to kind of be around my peers who had gone and feel intellectually, you know, not superior, like, mm. you know, not equal to them. Even now I'm like, gosh, I can't find a, a coherent way of saying that. And maybe I, <laughs> I get that all the time. You were looking for the word inferior, but I, yeah. I cannot tell you, like earlier in this interview, when I was trying to express the idea of an inner life, I got all like tied up in knots oh. about like interior something. I know. <laughs> it's really tricky as well, because Marianne is so clever that whenever I talk about normal people, I'm like, ah, oh, I have to be as <laughs> have to be as intelligent as Marianne. You're you know, extremely I, clever. <laughs> thank you. And I probably loved learning. So, you know, I love academia and I, I'd have you know I really worked hard at school and I it could have gone and I know that so and I guess you know you you learn things through life experience which I guess I've I've been lucky to do so I hope I don't regret not going because my friends who have gone have loved it and have made friends for life and you know have had not only sort of experience in learning but also experience you know life experience you know in going out and partying and and having fun and 
kind of immediately was like work <laughs> I mm. need to do everything I can to be an actor you wrote such a sweet and somewhat heartbreaking thing to me when you were listing your failures which is that your failure to go to university or drama school has perhaps made you fail to have confidence in your own opinions and then mm. and then you say I even struggled to come up with a list of failures as I kept thinking they weren't good enough <laughs> Honestly, I I, <laughs> I went back and forth over these because I just wanted to make sure that because I I've loved your podcast for a long time and I I always feel very happy when I listen to it and hear people I admire sort of speak of of times they've struggled because it's always made me feel better about myself. So I, I was really wanted to make sure I I did I did good enough <laughs> failures because I I've really learned from the failures I've listened to. That's such a lovely thing to say. And your failures are not only good enough, they're particularly good ones. Um, (laughs) Your second failure is your failure to accept anything good. In your words, I have a constant need for validation, which must be exhausting to my family. And when I read this, I cannot tell you how hard I related to it. So just Mm. tell us what form your need for validation takes. I don't know what it is, but even when something nice happens or someone says a nice thing to me about something my immediate sort of reaction is to overanalyze the way they've said it Mm. (laughs) and completely unpick whether it's really true or not which I think is a nightmare for my family and my friends because when they say something I'm like oh but do do, do you actually think that or you know I I really kind of overthink it and I, I don't know really where it comes from and it's a real problem because I never seem to be able to properly enjoy things when they're good because I'm always reading between the lines to try and find the bad. And I I really don't know where that stems from. Do you have siblings? No, it's just me. That's interesting that. I wonder if there's something in that because I think Mm -hmm. if you are used to spending a lot of time around adults and there isn't another child to like knock around with and to be able to compare your experience of whether you feel good enough with like maybe that makes it slightly more difficult yeah definitely and I definitely think not having siblings has has made me struggle to in confrontation or or at school whenever there was any sort of nastiness which just ultimately comes from being a teenager I would really struggle to stand up for myself because I'd never had to at home I'd never Mm. had sibling arguments or yeah I'd never had arguments with anyone my own age so that's been something that I've I've always struggled with is sort of I guess being like Marianne (laughs) being able to bat things away when I should you know again when I watched your performance as Marianne I felt god I wish I'd been like that at secondary school I wish I'd been (laughs) able to stand up for myself and my weirdness (laughs) (laughs) her comebacks are just so succinct I just wish I could have like I'm that person I think we all do it where you get home at the end of the day and you look in the mirror and you have the pretend argument you wish you'd you'd had yes you you say to yourself in the mirror all the things you wish you'd said to the person who'd been nasty (laughs) (laughs) but do you think you're as you describe it you're overthinking and looking for the negative in the positive is that also where your drive comes from because for me I guess I'm constantly pushing myself to be better or to do better and so therefore that makes me highly critical does Mm. that echo for you yeah I think so it's funny because my boyfriend's a big Man United fan and he talks about the Mourinho style of um, managing. Oh, tell that, me more. Where you wear a nice coat. It's <laughs> <laughs> all yeah. I know about football. <laughs> Whereby he's like such a brilliant manager for certain players yeah. because 
by kind of challenging them and I guess being quite harsh with them for some players can really motivate them to play better but for some Mm. players it really knocks their confidence and they don't and they thrive more from a kind of encouraging style of direction so to speak and I guess I I don't know where I fall on that because I think sometimes I read certain things or or somebody will yeah sometimes if I don't get a part for example I've always been okay at dealing with that type of rejection I do feel that motivates me to sort of get the next part I think okay I didn't get that but I I know I can get something else so I just have to keep going but then I think sometimes I guess when at work acting I can be quite harsh on my myself so like a lot of the time during filming there's a part of me who really wants to kind of be able to relax into giving a performance and just kind of go with it without any doubt of whether it's good or not but then there'd be a large part of me who constantly in your head is going ah why did you do it like that or Mm. go home and redo the scene to yourself in the mirror (laughs) that's and you would actually do that you would yeah (laughs) yeah yeah sometimes there's like reams of like footage on my mobile phone of me going home and refilming the scene just to check I did it okay (laughs) because it's very hard sometimes to know whether it is I mean I think Mm. I was really great because actually during normal people I kind of I stopped doing that so much because we were on every day so there was you stopped kind of worrying about each scene and worrying about proving yourself and and Lenny and Hetty who were really wonderful in in giving us confidence in ourselves but yeah that's been something that's I've I've had to learn. I think what you're explaining is not so much a failure to accept anything good but an artistic ability to connect in a very meaningful way with the world. And Mm. what I mean by that is that you are open to rejection and sadness as much as you can be open to happiness and success. Like it's actually Mm. a meaningful life, I believe, is about being in tune with both. Mm. And, And maybe that's what it is. Like you're wise enough to know that when something joyful happens, like it probably, like something sad will also happen (laughs) at some point in the future. I've said, I've expressed that very inelegantly. No, do you know, that's so true. That's something I really realized last year is it's never always one or the other. There's life, I think always has to balance, the universe will always balance it out. So, Mm. so last year for me was, was an amazing year. Like to have had the chance to play Marianne is something like, I cannot believe has happened. It was incredible in that sense. But I guess whenever something really great happens, there's a part of my head that goes, right, what's going to go wrong? Yeah. Because ultimately that's how the universe works. It's never perfect, you know. That's a very Irish way of thinking, I believe. <laughs> like that kind of belief yeah. in something bigger and like a fatalism and I totally get it. When you were talking there about being rejected from auditions... I was really interested in that because I think if I were a terrible actor, um, <laughs> I I would really struggle not to take those rejections personally. But it feels to me like you have quite a healthy delineation and you can identify what is a work rejection from what is yeah. a dating rejection or whatever. Yeah, well, I think at school, for example, I remember very vividly when I was in year eight, I didn't revise for my geography exam and I I got a really bad grade and I was so gutted. My mom was really, you know, really good because she was like, I think this, if this is a great thing because it's taught you that you have to work hard to 
to get what you want. You do. And and then if you do still get a bad grade, at least you know you've worked hard. Because I was kicking myself that I hadn't bothered revising. Mm. And so that's something that I sort of really took to heart. And so I worked really hard for my GCSEs and I worked really hard for my A-levels because I don't think you know, that stuff necessarily did come naturally. I knew that I, I wasn't someone who could just coast through. I knew I had to put the work in and it did pay off. And then I think that's something that I've taken in terms of acting too, that if you prepare ultimately the best you can, then if you don't get it, you've controlled all the elements you could control, which is learning your lines, picking the right outfit, making sure you turn up mm. on time. And then the bits that out that are out of your control they just ultimately are and you can't do anything about that so accepting that and kind of being able to deal with that is something I've kind of I'm able to sort of handle which I I guess is good but then I guess as I said before there are some auditions that unfortunately even though a lot of the time it's when you sort of get closest to them which really is a success because if you do get to the final few girls actually you know, you are good enough to play that part. You know, it has nothing to do with your ability. It has something to do with, I don't know, your eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. And whether they are right for the character or or whether you, you know, they, they imagine the character to have blonde hair and you have brown. And and yet when you don't get those parts, when you get really close to them, those are the hardest, I think, to get over because, you know, you really think that you could do it and, it, and that they're such big knocks. And I've had a few of them and I did actually have quite a few of them last year before I got normal people. And I got really close to something and I really thought I was going to get it and I didn't. And I I was so upset that I actually did the like, the thing you do when you break up with someone. I actually got a breakup haircut, which was my fringe. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I know. Which has since been like the best decision I've ever made because I genuinely think it's the only reason I I got (laughs) Marianne because I think she has a fringe, doesn't she? So it's just, I mean, that's definitely not the only reason. How amazing, like these things happen for a reason. And do you, do you also sometimes do that breakup thing of stalking your ex? Do you look at the thing that someone else has been cast in? Okay. Yeah. All the time, all the time. And I always look and I always go, yeah, they were, they were right. And ultimately I'm, I'm glad I didn't get that part because they were the right person for it and it wasn't for me you know but it's only mm. afterwards that you can look back and think that at the time it's really it's horrible it mm. really is you mentioned your fringe there and I wonder how much of your self-doubt is physical because it must be quite odd if you do have self-doubt about how you look to now have lots of people hailing you as the beautiful person that you are, but also a sort of style icon and wanting to emulate your haircut. And yeah. how has that been for you? That's really surreal. I mean, I think that, you know, like I said, it's it's very hard to even compute that as me because mm. it isn't really. I don't sort of dress like Marianne. That was Lorna who styled me, who is just, she's the style icon. And I'm trying to cut my fringe in quarantine. And it's it's uh, <laughs> it's a really interesting process. My flatmate's doing a great job of it. Thank goodness, but God. <laughs> so it, it is strange. And I, I definitely, I think that was something because obviously normal people is quite exposing. That was something I did feel a bit worried about. And I think the first day where I did a scene without clothes on, at first I was sort of very self-conscious as you can imagine because it is such a you know I don't even when I'm getting changed in changing rooms I am hiding in the corner mm. with my towel like I'm not someone who is has always been massively body confident so I think actually weirdly doing normal people has been quite an empowering thing because I think I had to accept very very early on that really there was nothing I could change about mm. the way I looked and that's fine and that you know 
all the bits I feel weird about, I just have to embrace. And I, and I think the people I admire are always people who just really own who they are and, and who, you know, who are unashamed about anything. And I think that's something I really aspire to be because like we're all beautiful in all the oddness of the way a body looks and bodies are odd (laughs) and they're all really different and I guess I think I sort of had to accept that mine was the way it was and there was nothing I could do about that and therefore I just had to sort of forget about it and and try and do the best work I could and honestly the next day (laughs) the next day I was walking to Tesco's and I was like oh my gosh like I feel so sort of liberated like (laughs) maybe I'll be a naturist I don't know (laughs) not in Tesco I implore you (laughs) (laughs) but what you were saying there about aspiring to be someone who is fully comfortable and owns themselves brings us on to your third and final failure which is your failure as you express it to truly do something for the sake of it rather than for it to be approved of and what do you mean by that yeah so what I kind of mean is I've just read the wonderful book Just Kids by Patti Smith and it follows her life growing up in the 60s with her partner at the time Robert Maplethorpe who's like this wonderful artist and photographer and, and so is she and I just was reading it and I was thinking gosh I'm so envious of the way they live of the way they live in a way that is just about creating art for the sake of creating art I can't imagine what Andy Warhol and that whole sort of period in the 60s would have been like if we'd have had Instagram you know, because I think that I did a open uni degree for a small time while I had a bit of free time last year and I'm going to hopefully pick it back up again. But we did a whole That's module. so great. What's the subject? Yeah. Arts and Humanities. Okay. Um, there was a chapter on Cezanne and of, of like Impressionist painters. And I just remember being really inspired by the fact that Cezanne would come and he would paint this beautiful mountain and he would paint it every single day. I just felt he was so unselfconscious. There was no kind of need to paint it for anybody other than the fact that he just wanted to capture the light on that mountain day to day as it changed. And I think that's something I wish I could do. And I'm really trying to make myself better at that, of accepting that when I do, I guess, a performance, that I have to just do, do it truthfully and try and shut off that part in my mind that is telling me that it's that it won't be good enough or that people will watch it and not like it. And I think I really realised that actually a few weeks ago before Normal People came out and I started reading, you know, I saw the articles and things like that. And and most of them were quite positive, which was lovely. But I realised that it suddenly made me incredibly self-conscious to even think about people watching and thinking about my work and talking about it and talking about me. I found that very, very strange. So and it made me quite anxious because suddenly I was like, gosh, I'm not sure it is good enough or mm. just all the thoughts, which I feel terrible because I feel like this whole podcast, I've just been like <laughs> telling me, you that I feel I'm not good enough. But I, <laughs> I do think, I don't know, it's, I do have that element of, of always feeling perhaps that you're creating something for somebody to watch it and judge it. And I guess I'd like to be free to, enough to just create because I want to rather than for it to be approved of, if you know what I mean. Oh my God, it makes so much sense. But I just, I want to come back to it, but I just want to tackle that thing about you saying, I feel like I've just been saying I'm not good enough. Because I don't think you have been saying that. I think you've been saying you're deeply sensitive, which is a beautiful quality to have. But can I just ask you straight up, are you proud of your work in Normal People? You, Daisy, are you proud of it? I am actually, which I'm so relieved about because when all those kind of articles were coming out before the Sunday that it came out, I was so worried. And on Sunday, I 
turned off my phone and I went upstairs and I watched the series with my because I'd watched episodes before but never in order and I watched the whole thing with my flatmates and I was so relieved because I was actually proud of what I'd done so so thankfully yes I am good I just wanted to give you the opportunity to say that and to hear yourself saying it Mm. because you should be proud of it because it's exceptional work and how special watching it with your flatmates were they all in tears and in love with Connell (laughs) I know oh my gosh yes (laughs) they were my boyfriend actually he was my amazing because what a tricky thing to watch but he loves the series thank goodness that's something I'm very relieved about but there was probably a moment in episode six where he was like this is a bit weird and he, had, <laughs> he, had, he was like oh this is weird and we all kind of had to acknowledge that it was a bit weird and then it was fine <laughs> have you had lots of friends hit you up for Paul's number Yes, I actually, I have had too many to even count. Like so many people asking if he's, if he's sing Paul Paul, (laughs) he's going to be, he's going to have a really interesting experience when he's coming out of isolation. (laughs) Yeah, God, of course, of course. Actually, I got asked to ask you whether he was single when I told them I was doing this (laughs) podcast, but I'm not going to do that, I'm afraid, because this interview is about you. But that thing about wanting to do something for its own sake, I think is so hard to do, as you've Mm. rightly identified, in the climate that we live in, where whether we like it or not, we are constantly watched. And Mm. not even if you're in the public eye. I mean, you're just constantly watched within your own friendship groups, your Mm. own kind of peer groups. How do you handle social media? Yeah, I mean, I really sort of struggle with it, to be honest. I I found Instagram to be, I guess, a friendlier place on the whole. And and for a long time, I didn't have Twitter. And I I got it recently. And and I really, I kind of really realised early on that it wasn't for me. So I I do go on it and I reshare the odd thing, but I, I never really delve too deep because I think it's really wonderful that we're able to express our opinions and share them and learn more about different viewpoints through Twitter. But I also find that it can be quite a scary place where people can I guess jump on bandwagons and and I guess speak openly about other people without kind of even thinking that you know they will actually read that you know you can access all of the stuff that is written on there so I think I just found that quite scary so I mean I think I probably won't have Twitter forever it's I think I spend too much time on Instagram too and I think that's something we all we all struggle with all of my friends I we all always speak about just how we wished we didn't spend so much time that we do but you know I do go on it I guess a lot I think it's like a force of habit your thumb just kind of automatically clicks on it and you're like oh god I've wasted 20 mm. minutes looking at, at nothing so yeah I have a an on and off relationship with it because I do think as, at the same time social media can be a really great thing and you know, I'm able to kind of contact people that, you know, and, and I guess get in touch with you, for example. And, and I mean, I'm delighted you were on Instagram <laughs> that night. Yeah. <laughs> and like, see what my family are doing and my friends. But yeah, I think it is that it's that, especially when, when you're a self-employed person, you spend a lot of time, or I definitely did before last year, not being busy. I mean, I, I, I had a kind of part-time job, but a lot of the time I was at home and, and my friends were off at uni or my friends who weren't were working and, and you kind of have a lot of time to spend on those apps. And I think it's not very healthy because whole time you're just seeing everybody kind of, I guess, living a life that you feel you should be living. And I think mm. that's something that is really interesting where I always feel like there's something I should be doing or, I, you know, I should be going out all the time or I should be 
eating really well and exercising all the time or I never feel like what I'm doing is right and actually I think that's one thing that normal people really shows that that actually there is no right way or normal way to be we're all different and actually everybody's looking at Instagram and feeling that sense of inadequacy and so managing that and being aware of that is something I, I really want to try and achieve. I think so many people will be so grateful that you've said that and thank you for being really open about it. Mm. I mean, one of the threads of this conversation has been about how we manage anxiety. And do you think you manage it better the older you get? Yes, actually, I I think I do. I think I, I found ways, particularly, I guess, with what we were talking about, about the hypochondria of not legitimizing that anxiety of not letting myself feel that it's rational because I know it isn't but yeah I mean I think it's something that comes and goes and I think I guess what's really interesting what I've learned is that is trying to quash that feeling of you know you always want more than what you have you're never ever satisfied I think that's something I've realized and so of remembering that actually if I were to go back in time and look at myself now I'd be really proud of myself but yet there's probably a large part of my head that's going, oh, I should be doing this or I should be doing that. And so trying to remember that, you know, to be satisfied and to count your blessings all the time, because, you know, that's really important to remember when something is good. And when you do have a down day and you do think that you're allergic to mouthwash and it does feel (laughs) like other people are nailing it and you're not, on a practical level, what do you do to get out of that? Or maybe you don't get out of it and you sit with it and that's your way Mm. of processing it. Yeah, I think probably the latter. I think it's mm. it can be really tricky, I think. I guess speaking to people is quite helpful, particularly with the mouthwash thing. of, Or actually sometimes not, because I guess if you speak to someone and you say it out loud, you're legitimising it as something that is really a threat to your life, which it isn't. It's just you thinking, oh, I think my tongue's a bit tingly. So <laughs> there's sort of different ways of kind of managing it. But yeah, I think, I guess sort of down days happen all the time and I think it's just kind of sort of working through it and trying to seek out the positives and and sort of surround yourself with people that are kind and treat you nicely and doing the same to others Mm. oh Daisy well if you didn't have all of this extraordinary emotional hinterland you wouldn't be able to give the performances that you do and I'm just so grateful that you are who you are but just just to end on a completely trivial note I'm sure you've had lots of extremely famous people beating a path to your door and wanting to be your friend what's the most surreal experience you've had since normal people has aired yeah I mean I think that's been something that's a bit bonkers I think probably Jodie Comer she did a a wee post about it and that for me was like what (laughs) because I (laughs) I I love Jodie Comer I think she's incredible and yeah, just just people I really admire. It's just amazing. I mean, I saw Courtney Kardashian watched it as well. So that like that's, what I know. Okay, that's, that's exciting. That's Sorry. crazy that she knows now what Gaelic football is. Like that's amazing. <laughs> just so many people like like you. Honestly, I couldn't believe you. Stop. You've Stop. So Me and Courtney cool. Kardashian. <laughs> I watched it and I absolutely loved it. And I love you. And I'm just oh. so thrilled to have had you on the podcast. Was it okay? It was amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.